Well, let's open our Bibles again to the book of Romans, the eighth chapter. And you might recall, <clears throat> pardon me, a few weeks ago as we turned to the eighth chapter of the book of Romans that I said I was going to introduce this by reflecting on an article by C.E.B. Cranfield on sanctification as freedom. And it uh, had to come in two parts because there are so many points that uh, I wanted to call from Cranfield's work. C.E.B. Cranfield is not with us in all things, but he has done some really fine thinking on the book of Romans. And this is an article, Sanctification is Freedom, which does not exclusively deal with the 8th chapter of Romans, but does in large measure, and I think will help us as we soon move into the actual exposition of the book, I mean this, this chapter, to understand it even better. So, I like to say this is not original with me. Uh, there may be some things that are original, but the, uh, the scheme is not original with me but is borrowed from the late Professor Cranfield of Durham. Let's pray before we read from a portion of the 8th chapter. Our Father, we ask that as we think upon your word again this evening, that we will be well prepared soon to move into the actual exposition of the 8th chapter of Romans as we consider sanctification as freedom. For here we find, especially in Romans 8, this great truth of being co-heirs with Christ and the way in which you continue to show love to your people in bringing us all the way to our heavenly home. Having seen that we are justified, we also understand that we are progressively sanctified, and we ask that your Holy Spirit will work that true work of holiness deep within our souls. For we ask it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Let's read the first two verses of the 8th chapter of Romans. This is the Word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, that is justification. Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's sanctification. Now, we've been looking as we have worked our way through the book of Romans at what it means to be free in Christ. The earlier portion of the book deals with the whole issue of justification, that we are completely and utterly accepted in the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us, received by faith alone. That justification is an act and not a process. But as we move on in the book of Romans, especially in chapters 6 through 8, we begin to understand how this, this sanctification is worked out in daily life. That is to say, the renovative aspect of being a Christian. If justification is forensic and legal, it happens in the courtroom, sanctification actually happens within the heart. And we are progressively becoming more like our Savior over time. The context of Christian freedom, then, is the struggle the ongoing struggle that the believer has with sin. If you're a believer and you're struggling with sin and you think there's something abnormal about that, think again. It is because of the regenerative work of the Spirit in your heart that you struggle with sin. You didn't have that struggle, not to God's glory, not for the sake of being holy. You did not have that struggle before the Holy Spirit granted you regeneration. So what does freedom mean in the Christian's daily life? We are free from guilt, but we also are free from the power of sin. What does that look like in the Christian's daily life? 
And when we first opened this theme, we saw that it meant seven things. That's why tonight is part two. Seven things. The first seven things were these. Sanctification as freedom means that in our freedom we have a small but real beginning. Secondly, the Holy Spirit frees us to begin to truly believe and trust. Thirdly, it means the commencement of faith that brings with it renewal of the mind, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Fourthly, the Spirit has set us free to resist sin. The fifth thing, we are free to address God by the name Father. The sixth truth, the Spirit sets us free to pray. And the seventh thing we saw is that we are free to try seriously to obey the law of God. Now this last point is becoming extremely important again, yes, even in our own circles. For there is a kind of antinomianism that is developing in the thought of some in which they see no or little relationship between the Christian life and the law of God. Now let's get that straight and let me repeat myself once again. When it comes to justification, the law has nothing to do with your justification. In that sense, you are not under law, but under grace. But in the Christian's ongoing renovation, so that we are becoming more and more Christ-like, the law continues to be the standard, the norm, to which our hearts are being conformed. The law is never the efficient cause of your growth in grace. It is never the efficient cause of your sanctification. Only the Holy Spirit is the efficient cause of sanctification. But the law is the standard to which your life is more and more brought to conformity. That's what the purpose of the third verse here is in Romans 8. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Nothing could be more clear than those who are walking according to the spirit are finding their lives more and more conformed to the righteous standard of God's law. And so it's deadly to say that the law has nothing to do with your growth in grace. It certainly does. But now let's move on as we think of sanctification as freedom to the eighth point. The eighth thing is this. We have freedom to try to obey God's law, as we said in number seven. That freedom is freedom to love God with all one's heart and soul and might and to love one's neighbor as oneself. Now you know the text here, Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19, Mark 12, 28 and following, in which we are called upon to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. There's only one place in Paul's writings in which he speaks of the believer's love to God. One place. You know where it is, don't you? Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Those who love God. That's the only place you'll find it in Paul's writings. Although it is in other ways very obvious that the Apostle Paul expects us to love God. 
Paul speaks of God's love to us, and more often he speaks of the love that Christians owe one to another and to our fellow human beings. For those of you who are note takers out there, Romans 12, 9, Romans 13, 8 to 10, Romans 14, 15, Romans 15, verse 30. So the Holy Spirit frees us to love other human beings. It's very, very interesting that in Romans chapter 13, 1 through 7, you remember that in chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, we have the portion that tells us how we are to relate to government and how we are to submit to civil authorities. That in chapter 13, 1 through 7, is placed between two passages that deal with love for others. In other words, what Paul is saying to us in chapter 13, 1 through 7 is, fulfilling our political responsibilities is a part of loving our neighbor. It's part of our sanctification. Now that becomes very important in our culture where we have the responsibility to vote. But submission to government, of course, unless that government demands of us what Scripture says that we may not do, is part of our growth in grace. Christ-centered love means that I do not dominate, I do not manipulate others, I want my brother to be free to grow in Christ. So, you are now free to love others, which was not true before, not in a God-centered way, not in a God-glorifying way. You were not free until Christ freed you to begin to love others. The ninth thing is this. In chapter 12, 9 through 21, we find the marks of love. In chapter 14 and 15 of the book of Romans, we find this gentleness that should characterize the relationships that we are to have in the church, one with another. But assumed in all of these chapters is also our struggle to care for one another with gentleness and our failure to do so. Cranfield's point is this, by freeing us to try seriously to love God and our neighbor, the Holy Spirit makes us free to repent. You now, you now have the freedom to attempt to love your, your neighbor after the pattern of Christ's love for you. You will fail. And part of growth in grace is now the freedom to repent. Before the Lord and before one another. Before the Lord, Lord, I'm struggling to love this person. Lord, you've called me to love this brother, and I want to do what you've commanded, but I'm having a hard time. Or to go to a brother or sister in Christ and to confess to them the difficulty that you are having. So repentance is a distinguishing mark of everyone who is being sanctified. Everyone who is growing in grace, the Holy Spirit makes you free for penitence, not penance, penitence, repentance. The tenth thing is this. You remember that in chapter 6, 1 through 14, we saw what we are in God's sight, already dead to sin and already risen with and in union with Christ. But in Romans eight thirteen, we see Paul using this idea of death and life in a different way. Romans eight thirteen, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So in Romans 6, we are already dead to sin, alive in Christ. In 8.13, Paul uses dying in a moral sense. We have died with Christ and are raised with Christ. And on that basis, we begin to die daily to sin 
and live moment for moment for him. So it is true that you are dead to sin, alive to Christ, but it is also true that you are to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him and that daily, so that you are daily dying to sin more and more and more. Well, that fact leads us to another, an 11th point. Now, let me read Cranfield's words. This setting free to die again and again to sin and to rise again and again to newness of life is a setting free for life, which is duly called life because it is turned in the direction of obedience to God. But this is only a partial fulfillment. We have yet to die with Christ in our actual death and to be raised with him finally. The life for which the spirit of life has set us free includes both newness of life in this world and also eternal life hereafter. So the point, this 11th point, the point is simply that not only do you have the promise of eternal life now, but your freedom in Christ is also the promise of eternal life in the future. Referenced often by Paul in this 8th chapter. Notice how he begins to work out this theme of freedom in relation to this point. In chapter 8, verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So you're free. Then he says in verse 6, To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. All right, now verses 10 and 11. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And we could go on in this 8th chapter. And we could see references to the resurrection. We could see references to eternal life. You've been free from death, people of God. And your freedom from death means that not only are you alive in Christ now, but we have not yet gone through the experience of physical death When we do, should Christ not return first, there is the promise of freedom from the grave. That's the point. Man, that's freedom. That is freedom in Christ, that your body will be raised from the dead. Well, that leads to a twelfth point. The noun elpis, which means hope, is found 13 times in the book of Romans. Elpidzane, which is the infinitive to hope, is found four times in the book of Romans. So 17 or so times in the book of Romans we find the word hope. And often we find the concept of hope even when the word hope is absent. What does this mean? The life-giving spirit imparts the freedom to the believer to hope. Now, this is huge. In chapter 8, 17 through 30, let's just take the time to read these words. 
just breaking into the context with verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. See the word? That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's the resurrection. For in this hope, see the word, in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The ultimate promise is hope. This hope is not just for us as individuals, but according to this text, it is for the entire creation. Referencing sufferings of this present time, verse 18, the creation's subjection to vanity, verse 20, the groaning and travailing together of the whole creation, verse 22, the groaning of believers, verse 23, the patience with which we wait for that for which we hope, verse 25, all of this points to the painful circumstances in which we live in this fallen world, in which our hope is now to be exercised. The Christian's hope is already foreshadowed in chapter 4 in the hope of Abraham. You remember in chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, the apostle says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Then in chapter 13 of the book of Romans, in verses 11 through 14, which are among my favorite verses in the New Testament. Augustine was reading one of these verses when he was converted. The Apostle Paul, not using the word hope, but talks about the concept of hope. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's the Christian's hope. It's talking about the return of Jesus Christ without even using the word. So the fact that what the Roman Christians hope for, their ultimate their final salvation at Christ's coming draws even nearer, renders all the more urgent their obligation, says Cranfield, their obligation to use the present time for obedience of life. For Paul, it is of the utmost importance that Christians should continue to hope. So when we look at the remainder of Romans, we come to chapter 12, verse 12. Chapter 12, verse 12, I sent this passage to a a daughter in Christ just recently. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Chapter 15, verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. He's talking about the Old Testament. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So those of us here, all of us, are Christians in a fallen world. We know within ourselves this deep groaning as we long to be freed from those things that that in this world represent the fallenness and brokenness of the world. And those of you who are going through particularly difficult times at this point in your Christian life, groan with that inward groaning. The whole creation groans. Even the Spirit of God groans, according to the Apostle, interceding for us. But through it all is this truth, this word, this great word, this grand word, and this wonderful concept of hope. A hope that will not disappoint So the New Testament Christians, as we read in the Word of God, were constantly determined, their lives were constantly determined by looking ahead to the return of Christ. They looked back to the resurrection, they looked ahead to the return of Christ, and their lives were filled not with simply, I hope so, I would like things to change, but a certain hope that Christ will come again, completely renovate this fallen world, raise his people from the dead, and that all wrongs will be righted. That's the hope that should permeate your life and mind. I was reading Leslie Newbigin a while back, and I do not recommend Newbigin's theology um, as a whole. That's not why I reference him. But when he first went to India and was learning the Tamil language, he found that the Tamil language had no word for hope. Does the word stand for much in our culture today? Not really. It's just a wish that things would change. Just a wish that something would be different. And I think Newbigin is right in observing that our culture is marked by the absence of any sense of a worthwhile future. He says, by contrast, one of the marks of the biblical counterculture will be a confident hope 
that makes hopeful action possible even in situations which are, humanly speaking, hopeless. That hope is reliable because the crucified Lord of history has risen from the dead and will come in glory. So what does this mean? It means that your neighbors who are out of Christ have no horizon. They have no hope. Our horizon is defined by the words with which we close our worship service each week. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And this translates into meaningful meaningful living, meaningful service, and even joyful action today in the midst of our suffering. Does that make sense to you? Does it really? That as we look ahead to the promise of Christ's return, the Christian is not a hopeless person. And my heart is very, very deeply burdened for those professing believers in Jesus Christ, undoubtedly many of them true believers in Jesus Christ in Iraq. The tortures of these folk are something that I'm, I'm sure you're, of which you're aware I'm not even going to repeat. And yet they can die in hope. And we can live in hope because of the promise that the risen Christ is the same Christ who is coming again. And let me say again, every generation of Christians should live as if we are the generation that will see the return of Christ. For we well may be. Some generation will be. That's for certain. 13. The Spirit also gives us freedom to rejoice. If we have hope that in the midst of the groaning, which is genuine and real, we can also be a people that rejoice. So again, 12.12, if you would not mind turning there again. 12.12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. You see it? Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And of course, we've seen this also in chapter 5, verses 2 through 11, and I will not turn us there. Number 14. The liberation with which the Holy Spirit has given us freedom is liberation for fellowship with all others that the Holy Spirit has set free. In other words, Paul does not think of our sanctification, growth in grace, merely as sanctifications of the individuals, but as individuals within the fellowship of a church, a local body. You are now free in Christ to struggle with temptation and sin, to struggle with the fallenness of this world, to live eschatologically with your hope fixed on the return of Christ. You are now free to do that with other Christians. Do you value that? Growth in grace is not just for the individual. It is for the church. 
Well, let me bring some concluding observations. We started by reading chapter 8, verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That freedom means not only freedom from, but freedom to. And so we have imperatives throughout the book of Romans. Chapter 6, 13. Chapter 13, 12b. Chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12, 3. Chapter 6, 12. Chapter 15, 2. Commands, commands, commands. Imperatives. That shows that Paul does not think of a believer in sanctification as a passive spectator of some kind. In justification, you're passive. You add nothing to it. When the Holy Spirit, however, regenerates you and begins to work sanctification in your life, you are called to fight the fight. You are called to run the race. Paul uses these active metaphors of of militarism and active metaphors of athletics. You are to get out there and you are to pour on the coals. There is to be an active response that is called for in the Christian life. In sanctification... We are not passive. In sanctification, we are very active, and we are called upon to bear fruit. Cranfield says, If the Holy Spirit is really at work in one's life, there will be some evidence at least of penitence, of awareness of one's need of forgiveness, both God's and one's neighbor. And then he concludes in saying, While it is important to recognize that has set free, 8-2, certainly does not mean that the life of the believer is a triumphant progress from victory to victory, such as some Christians are prone to imagine. It also, it is also of the utmost importance to recognize that we cannot thank God enough for the fact that in the darkness of this world as we know it, the Holy Spirit never ceases to carry on His sanctifying work. And if God does not despise but actually values the faltering and fumbling beginnings of being turned in the direction of obedience seen in the lives of Christians, if God doesn't despise the faltering efforts of believers to begin to learn how to live in freedom and to obey, can we ever cease from marveling at such ineffable grace? And indeed we cannot. May the Lord then open our hearts as we continue on in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans to understand more clearly what it means that we are free in Christ.